Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 1 to 14, and the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 14 through 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel, that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come to this moment, this moment of stillness and silence, still there's so much swirling in this world, so much swirling in our own minds and hearts. They race, running from the past or anxious about the future. It's hard to be just right here, right now. But this is where you are. And so meet us in this place. Help us to see amidst all of our differences from one another. Ethnic and racial differences, political differences, socioeconomic differences, different perspectives and opinions on a variety of topics, different places in our spiritual journey. We have far more in common than we realize. You see us and you know us in all our complexity, all our contradictions, all our beauty, and all our brokenness. And your response is to give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love and the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so break through now. We pray, teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and we'd be woken up to your grace. So make us more alive than ever in you and send us out to be your hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I was on an airplane last night, and as we boarded, just before the plane started taxiing, I noticed, I don't know how I missed this, there was a small child right in front of us. And you know, when you can avoid, as a father of three kids, I get it. If you can avoid sitting next to a small child on an airplane flight, you do it, right? So do I. Okay. I didn't notice it until it was too late. And the plane starts taxiing, and this child starts screaming. And somehow, kind of like if you're in the woods and you hear one coyote howl, and then it like wakes up all the other then there was another child next to me that begins to scream. And I'm wanting to put the finishing touches on the sermon and take a nap, but it's howling in the cabin of this airplane. And then I remembered, I have noise-canceling headphones in my bag. <laughs> Before the plane took off, I said, two screaming children, thank God for noise-canceling headphones. And I put those babies on, and I focused on the sermon, and I took a nap, and I didn't have to hear any of the howling around me. This first passage we hear from Exodus 12 starts with devastating oppression of God's people in slavery in Egypt. And it's painful and they're howling, and it seems like God is not paying attention. It seems like God has found some way to block out all the noise and all the chaos and not get involved. And yet the punchline of that story, which becomes their Independence Day in a way, which becomes their Fourth of July, this is the original Passover, the liberation of the people of Israel from slavery into freedom. 
And the punchline is, God is at work to rescue. Day after day, they had been making bricks for Pharaoh. Day after day, with no hope that tomorrow could be better than today. And so they wake up again, and they make more bricks. And they wake up again, and they make more bricks. And they do this for hundreds of years. But today will be a day unlike any other day. Because God will break forth to rescue. And so God says to Moses, tonight, in one place, at one time, I'm going to send an angel of justice on the whole land. Now, I realize someone, as you, as you read this, first of all, there's all the talk of the lamb and the blood of the lamb. There's talk about death and killing. Like, I hear that too. Someone says, that's what I hate about organized religion. That's what I can't stand about the Old Testament or the Bible, is it's so violent and so graphic. I hear you. But let me just pause there and say, this reminds me of that scene from The Princess Bride, where in The Princess Bride, you have the Sicilian, the character of the Sicilian, and his favorite phrase is, inconceivable, right? Every time he sees something, inconceivable. Later on, by the way, as an aside, I had a seminary professor who looked and sounded just like the Sicilian from The Princess Bride. So he would pontificate on some of the most beautiful mysteries of the cosmos, and I would be there going, inconceivable. But finally, one of the characters of the movie confronts him and says, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Right? You have to rethink the way that you're seeing the world. Let me just say, when we come to judgment in the Bible, if, as long as you can't hold off your judgment on that idea of judgment, because I would make the case, you don't want a God that doesn't judge the world. In our society, it's in vogue to say, I'm not going to judge you you're not going to judge me. Who is to say anything wrong about anybody else or how we should live? There's no absolute truth except for how you define your own rules. That works until someone tramples on you. One theologian who came from Eastern Europe, Miroslav Volf, says, anybody who says that a God of judgment is a bad thing generally comes from a background of privilege and ease. But people who have been oppressed, people who have been trampling, people who wake up in Kiev this morning in the Ukraine want a God who judges injustice. The problem is we get it wrong. We judge the, we judge the wrong things wrongly. This is the story of a God who's created a beautiful world. And the judgment, the idea of judgment is he's going to put it to rights. He will not sit silently as the brokenness of this world unfolds but rather he will step in to do something about it. So just hold that in mind as we go forward because the big idea is God comes to rescue. Let's look at how he does it. As we see what God opposes, what God provides, and what God proposes. Okay. First, what God opposes, which is injustice and oppression of any kind. See, the story goes back 400 years earlier where you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then from Jacob you have the 12 tribes and you have Joseph as one of the, you have Joseph, his son Joseph. And Joseph and his brothers are in Egypt. And they're prospering and they're fruitful and they're prolific until there is a new king that didn't know them. And it says that new king became threatened by their prosperity threatened by their success and put them into grinding, stifling, 
work. So Pharaoh might say, the economy's the king. And whenever that happens, injustice always follows. So the Israelites were introduced to slavery for cheap labor to keep the economy humming in Egypt. Pharaoh was focused and prioritized the economy, and it worked. They had their idea of gods. They had their idea of theology. They had their system of religion, but all of it came second to the economy. What was the point of the, the god of the Nile River? Was to have enough irrigation to provide crops for the economy. And on and on it goes. When the economy is the most important thing, whether in Egypt or America or anywhere in between, when the economy is the most important thing, injustice always follows. When economy eclipses love of neighbor, the end result is injustice. And so it says in Exodus 1, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter. Whether Hebrew slaves in Egypt or Celtic slaves in Rome or African slaves in the United States of America, all had this experience. They ruthlessly made the people work and made their lives bitter. Doesn't matter if they were making brick and mortar in Egypt or in the cotton fields of the southern United States. See, the Egyptians had a theological system. They theologized this. They spiritualized this. They said something like, you know, in the divine order of things, some people deserve to be on top and some people deserve to be on the bottom. And that's just the way it is. Well, that may have been the will of the gods of Egypt, there to serve the intention of the empire. But God, Yahweh, is opposed to oppression and domination of others. In Exodus chapter 2 it says, And God heard their groaning. God saw and knew their plight and moved to rescue. Where do you hope God sees in your life? Where do you want God to take note in our world? And the story continues as we read last week as God confronts Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to interrupt you with my grace and with my power, but that comes with a calling. You know, Moses had been born into the system of slavery, had been born into a season of infanticide as the children were being killed all around him, and he escapes. And he's adopted into Pharaoh's household, ironically, raised as royalty, realizes that he's actually an Israelite living in an Egyptian household. Talk about an identity crisis. In anger, strikes out, kills an Egyptian who's overseeing the slavery and runs for his life. And it's there that God interrupts him and says, go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and tell him, let my people go. Old man Moses confronts the most powerful man in the world and goes to him and Pharaoh says, no, 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 yeah, right. <laughs> the God of domination 
the God that Pharaoh is holding on to, the God of the empire, the God of injustice, the God of oppression, that entire system, the God of domination against the God of liberation. And as you read through the story, there are these series of plagues that come and visit Egypt, continually hammering against them, but they're mostly plagues against the economic system of Egypt. If you can't grow grain, you can't make money. If you can't get irrigation, you can't grow grain. And on and on it goes. And the Egyptian gods, with a lowercase g, are humiliated. For example, the priests of the Nile god, the Nile god itself can't overcome the god of all creation. They can't control the Nile River. And Egypt's economy is undone, and everything comes crashing down. And so our passage... Exodus 12, Passover, this last plague, the death of the firstborn male in Egypt is severe. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on there, but we do know two things. Egyptian society, much like many ancient societies and some societies today, was based on at least two principles, primogenitor and patriarchy. Primogenitor says the the birth order matters in terms of power and status and succession. So the firstborn was better than the secondborn, was better than the thirdborn. This is how property and status were passed on. That's primogenitor. And then patriarchy, men had the power in society and not women. So what's happening here is as God is judging the unjust systems of the empire, he goes to the top of the top, the firstborn of the males. Egypt's system of oppressing, exploiting, abusing, dehumanizing, dominating others is about to come crumbling down, and it's severe. But note how it happens. God says, get a lamb, like a fluffy little meek and mild lamb, and prepare it. And then apply the blood to the doorpost and prepare a meal and eat all of it. You're going to sit down and have a meal. And while you sit there eating, God says, I will be working to liberate you and set you free. All you have to do is eat. The heart of Israel's liberation came not as a result of a slave revolt or a military victory, but a meal at a table. Liberated by God as they sat at a feast of liberation. Not as a result of right thinking or right acting or strategy or trying harder, but God did for them what they could never do for themselves, rescued them. And so God says every Passover, every year at this time, wherever you are, whether you're in Babylon or Persia or Rome or Germany, remember, God breaks through to rescue. Reminded the Israelites, the Jewish people, God is not on the side of the oppressors. God rescues 
But the thing about this God who rescues is that the rescue comes in every dimension of life, which stands to reason. It logically makes sense. If God created it all, then wouldn't God be out to renew and redeem all of it? Here we're focusing on systemic oppression and injustice of the empire, but doesn't God also seek to liberate you and me from the evil we do to ourselves, the evil we do to one another, the things that have been done to us? God looks at all of it and says, I'll set you free from that. God is opposed to your slavery to addiction. God is opposed to your slavery, to greed, and the relentless quest for more that feels like trying to hold water in your hands. You can only do it for so long before it slips through. God is opposed to your slavery, to lust that's dehumanizing you and others. God is opposed to your slavery, to the opinion of others that's driving all sorts of behaviors and fears in your life. God comes to you and me and says, let it go. Be free. The question is, are you going to try to hold on to it like Pharaoh? Or are you going to open yourself up to this sort of liberation? God opposes the domination of oppressed people in any way. That's what God opposes. But what does God provide? I mean, in short, if you're reading, this is just listener comprehension 101, God provides a lamb. So this is, if you've ever heard in a song in church, we're thankful for the blood of the lamb, that I know that is a striking phrase. These are the places where we get that sort of imagery. When God brought judgment on oppression and slavery in Egypt, God provided a way out. God provided a way to escape judgment. And it was a lamb. Which brings us to our second reading from the Gospel of Luke, because generations later, Jesus sits with his best friends on this great eve of Passover. On the night he was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross, he sits there with his friends. In verse 14, he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He would have begun as all traditional Passover Seder meals began, where there's this kind of back and forth between the, the, the group of people and the presider over the meal. And so it begins with the question, why is tonight different from all other nights? And the presider would say, begin by telling the story of the Passover. And so here's Jesus telling the story but in a way that would have astounded his hearers. Because he's not just talking about what God has done in the past. He's talking about what God will do in the future. He's retelling the story of Passover and showing them that it's actually all about him. Years ago, he would say, they ate a meal before God liberated them from slavery in Egypt. But tonight, we eat a meal the night before God will liberate all from evil and sin and death itself. All other deliverances, all other sacrifices point here to me. Jesus is the ultimate Moses. 
who leads us into the ultimate exodus, the ultimate rescue from slavery into freedom. And Jesus is at the table. And what's happening? Here's the bread. And here's the wine. But Jesus never gave them the main course. Did you notice that? Now, someone says that's the gospel of Luke. Maybe in the other gospels they included it. But Mark and Matthew in their gospels as well leave it out. No, no, no. It's amazing. What's the point? There's the wine. There's the bread. But there's no lamb on the table. Because the lamb is at the table. Maybe now they're remembering when John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, do you remember the last time that God rescued his people from slavery into freedom? That God invited God's people into relationship with him through the lamb. And you're looking at the lamb of God that brings freedom into your life, that calls you to liberate others in this world, that brings you to God because he's God pursuing you. Jesus is the lamb who gives his life for our liberation from a much greater enemy, not just from economic and political oppression. It's nothing less than that, but it's a whole lot more. From far darker and more sinister evils, of sin and death, of corruption and decay, of despair and brokenness. And he says, I give my life so that you may be free. And so the next day he will be betrayed by a friend. He will be the victim of injustice and cruelty at the hands of religion in collusion with the empire. Don't you see, he enables you and me to escape judgment because he takes all of the judgment himself. All that we have done and all that's been done to us crashes upon his shoulders like a wave and he takes it all. Dealing a death blow to death itself. Jesus led a revolution not by violent reaction to an empire, but by forming a new community in the heart of the empire that lives in this way, agents of his renewal. That's what turns the world upside down. And so here's what Jesus proposes in that great meal. What does he oppose? Oppression of any kind, including the ways that you oppress yourself and others the ways we do it individually and systemically. What does he oppose? Anybody being oppressed, because he created it all. What does he provide? A lamb, himself, to rescue us from that cycle of brokenness. But then what does he propose? How do you go forward? And Jesus at the table, the lamb of God, remembering the story, calling us into freedom says, do this in remembrance of me. On one hand, he says, eat the bread and drink the cup, and when you do, you are rehearsing the story. When you forget that God sees you in your pain, 
Remember, as this bread is taken and blessed and broken and given, how he, the Lamb of God, was taken, blessed, broken, and given for you. Receive that love again and again and let it work on your heart. Let it work on your mind. Let it work on your soul. Let it shape you. Like the waves shape the cliffs at Sunset Cliffs or in La Jolla, constantly hitting them and shaping them and molding them. Let the love and grace of God shape and mold your life. It's relentless. This is why we gather around sacrament of Eucharist, around the scriptures, because we forget. And he comes back and gets in front of you again and again and says, do this in remembrance of me. I love you. I think it's so interesting. There's um, my buddy Chuck, De, Chuck DeGroat, who many of you know, wrote a great book on narcissism. It's actually on narcissism in the church. So when pastors are narcissists and how all that plays out. But, you know, with political stuff going on, he gets asked to comment on political figures and all sorts of other things. And, you know, narcissism leaves this huge wake of damage behind the person. Smells bad to everybody except for the person involved. And I just read an article on what drives narcissism. And the author was saying, underneath narcissism is deep shame. Right? There's this void of shame that if I just admitted to myself or to others how broken it feels in here, I would crumble. So keep up the, the shield at all costs. Keep the bright lights on everybody else. And it hurts people. In other words... Hurt people, hurt people, right? Our brokenness, our pain, our shame actually has rippling effects not only in your self-talk and how you view yourself, but it drives all sorts of behaviors that do damage to other people. And Jesus comes and interrupts all of that, not beginning with your external actions, beginning with your internal identity. Remember your beloved. Do this in remembrance of me. Let that heal the core, which then will drive behavior and relationship. This is why we celebrate the Eucharist weekly. But then he also says, do this in remembrance of me. And the insinuation, the assumption is we would do it together. This is one of the most difficult things of the pandemic in terms of coming together as a church is that we gather together around the bread and the cup and friends who are joining in online. We do the best we can to fold together to remember whether you're near or far in person or online, we are together. Do this together. Communion with one another. There is not one loaf for people who vote one way politically and a different loaf for people who vote the other way. There's not one cup for people who make a ton of money and a different type of wine for people who don't. There's not one table for people of one particular ethnicity and a different table for somebody else. We gather together around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in this table together, which is the unifying principle of the church. One author wrote, a church is where peace has been made because in the Eucharist, in Jesus' body and blood, everything's been reconciled to God. This is called the new humanity. The Eucharist is about the new humanity. People who previously had nothing in common discover the only thing they now have in common is the one thing that matters. 
People who had previously found themselves on opposite sides of a wall find out the wall has been destroyed. People who fought over an endless array of issues realize that peace has been made and there's nothing left to fight about. In the new humanity, you hear perspectives you wouldn't normally hear. You walk in someone else's shoes. You find out that judgments you'd previously made about that group or people of that type of men or kind of women or all those kinds of kids simply don't hold up because now you're getting to know one of those and it's changing everything. You learn that your labels for different people groups are insufficient because people are far more complex and unpredictable and intelligent and creative. You used to have a rigid stance on a particular issue, but now you've heard the other side, and it's impossible anymore to categorize them as all stupid and uninformed and heartless because you realize that they have thought about their position and they've weighed the consequences and they have some good points that you might want to consider as well. In the new humanity, our world gets bigger. Our perspective goes from black and white to color. Our sensitivities are heightened. We're rescued from sameness and uniformity because the wall has come down and peace has been made. A church is new humanity on display. And so we have people of socioeconomic means, of financial resources. We have people with no resources at all, not sure exactly where they're going to sleep tonight or how they're going to pay their rent. And each has something to offer the other and learn from the other. And we become more deep and complex and alive as we do. We have someone who's, in, you know, and this isn't someone in particular, this is just a caricature that exists, a profile of someone in this church who grew up in the church and now is questioning everything. In the same community as someone who didn't grow up in the church at all and is new to all of this and can't believe they're actually believing these things and becoming a Christian and looking at getting baptized. And they have something to offer each other and learn from one another. Do this in remembrance of me and do this together. And finally, what God proposes. When he said, do this in remembrance of me, what if he was actually talking about enacting what this sacrament is about in our daily lives? In other words, as this bread is taken and blessed and broken and given, what if that becomes the pattern of your life and mine as we follow Jesus together? To be called by God, to be blessed by God, to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out on behalf of others around us, given as a gift to this world. Maybe that's what he means when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Maybe that's one of the challenges we could do as a church is ask ourselves big questions like, what does it look like for us to be the Eucharist to these people in this neighborhood, in this city, right here and right now? What does it look like for us to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the healing of other people in this time, in this place. If our church was taken away from our city or from our neighborhood, who would protest? Who would miss us? Only those who are members? Only those who are part of it? Only those who attend its services? What about single mothers? 
What about refugees? Atheists? Immigrants? The poor? Prisoners? In other words, as we are taken, blessed, broken, and given, we're living out our calling to be good news to the city. The world is transformed into that liberated kingdom of God where all people come together knowing they're beloved. But as we do, we become more alive. This is the great calling to freedom. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray as hungry people. We hunger for so much, and you can tell by the way we live our lives, constantly acquiring, devouring, taking in more, and yet we're hungry. And so feed us today in this feast of liberation with what we really need, freedom in you, a sense of our identity as the beloved, and a calling to go out as those who are taken, blessed, broken, and given to this world. So bring us to life. And bring your kingdom of liberation, joy, freedom, and hope into this world, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.